Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. In our category, at least, upsells sort of creates this distraction and is like, oh, I'm not sure if I need that upsell. You know what? Let me save this page and I'll come back. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn why you want to sell other brands before creating your own brand, why you want a 90-day return policy instead of a 30-day return policy, and why this company does not do upsells. Today, I'm joined by Chaz from LibWatches. LibWatches is a direct-to-consumer micro-brand crafting durable, high-quality, Swiss-made watches built to suit the modern man and was started in 2013 and based out of Miami, Florida. Welcome, Chaz. Hey, how are you? Cool. So yeah, that introduction, like uh, the word micro-brand, this is one of the first times I've heard this. So there's something that, that was written in the description that you guys provided to us. Like, what, what is a micro-brand? So micro-brand would be probably the best way to describe micro-brand would be a brand that uh, sort of like, um, I don't want to say we're going after the big guys, but we're sort of like have a niche. Um, and um, uh-huh. micro is obviously we're very small. So, Got it. so we're like, uh, we're sort of like a small niche brand. And um, we're trying to do like what the big boys do, but we're doing it on a much smaller scale. Got it. Makes sense. So this is obviously a very competitive industry. You know, watches are, are a very competitive industry to be in. How do you guys differentiate yourself when you are, like you're saying, a, a smaller brand, a niche brand, a boutique brand, essentially, that is going against the, the the much bigger companies out there? So I think the two the two things that we strive for would be obviously the product. So from a design perspective, from a quality perspective, those are the two key points. And then I would say our connection with our fans. So we don't call um, customers. We don't use the word customers. It's a bad word here. So everybody that wears one of our watches is considered a fan. Mm, that makes sense. So this, uh, the product is, like you're saying, it's a prerequisite. You have to have a good product, a product that is high in quality for anyone to even consider you. How do you make sure that that kind of, uh, those kind of values that you have internally to make sure, making sure that you have a great product, how do you make sure you communicate that out to your, your fans to make sure that they know the, the product that you're offering? So, I mean, obviously, you know, we have, we, we strive a lot on content. So when it comes to like imagery, explanations, specifications, but uh, I mean, imagery and video, I would say is probably our key way of communicating it. Um, the other way is actually people holding our watches in their, hand, in their hands. So, you know, we have a 90 day return policy, no questions asked. If you're not happy with the product, put it back in the box. We'll even send you a return label if it's in the United States. And, uh, if you look at our reviews, I mean, it's just phenomenal. So the feedback has been great um, from day one. Um, I, I've been obviously in the industry for, for quite a few, quite a few years, actually since 1993. Um, I was in production um, earlier on. I spent about five years in production, so I have a very very good handle on uh, you know what a good quality watch should should be like. Mm, so, 1993 was when you got this your start in the industry. So, 20 years in the making before you you started Live Watches. Talk to us a little more about that background. Like, what were you doing during that that time to build up the expertise in the industry? Yeah, okay, sure. Um, I started with a small brand called Daniel Mink. I'm not even sure if it still exists anymore, 
Um, I got a job right out of high school. I started working for them. I actually started by packing watches. Um, and then I was slowly promoted, um, like a year and a half later, I went into sales, which was great by the way, cause it gave, it gave me a really good idea of like what people wanted, what, you know, what was going on. I mean, that part of the business I think was, it was, you know, that, that transition that I had, I think was optimal, um, going from starting in the packing room to sales. And then from sales, I moved on to production and, um, that company unfortunately folded. Um, but you know, the five and a half years that I spent there, um, was a phenomenal, it was phenomenal for me. I got a lot of experience, um, the ins and outs, both from a logistical standpoint, also from sales. And like I said, uh, production. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what are some of the, the most valuable skills and experience that you got out of working on the production side that you're now able to apply when you, when you started Live Watches? So I think from a production, I think is the, mo- the, the most important thing I would say is relationships. So you have to know who's what, when, and where, like what each, I would say each, you know, when it comes to a watch, you have many, many different suppliers. So you have your case supplier, you have your dial supplier, um, crowns, small components like screws, gaskets, crystals, movement. You know, there's a lot of different components that go into a watch. So each one of those pieces are sometimes produced by different people. And, you know, having those relationships, knowing those people and knowing exactly you know, what the lead times are for things, um, knowing exactly how to coordinate, you know, there's a lot of different pieces that need to come together to make everything work together. So then, you know, obviously you have the assembly of the watch, um, which comes after you've aggregated all the different components. And I think, um, having that all work in a very cohesive way is, is, I'm not sure if it's a talent, but it's more of like a know-how, like understanding it is really, really important. Yeah, I think this is one of the most successful ways to segue into starting your own business, which is to build that industry expertise, get to see what it's like on the inside by working for someone else and then branching out and starting your own business. And like you're saying, one of the key aspects of doing that is to build those relationships in the industry, know who the players are, uh, have some kind of personal relationship with them. I think one of the concerns for anyone else that's maybe not even in the watch industry, but any other industry when they want to do this is that there are probably politics and maybe even some legal issues involved when you make this transition. How did you branch out gracefully to make sure that you weren't you know, stepping on any toes or running into any issues in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's a concern. I think just, you know, going from working from another company and then all of a sudden to making your own brand, um, could be, you know, sort of a sticky, sticky transition. Um, in my case, I didn't go from, um, this brand, um, from a, I mean, the brand had sort of like fizzled out and so therefore they kind of went away. And then I spent about, um, close to eight years of just trading watches. So I sort of moved away from the manufacturing side and I was just trading high-end watches. I see. So you weren't a direct competitor right away. You spent time in a different yeah. kind of uh, different kind of role in the place. Okay. You know, the production side, my experience in the production side was 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 obviously the base of where I started, but trading other brands 
was actually where I learned like what works and what doesn't work and what brands are doing correctly and incorrectly. So, um, you know, the production side was great, but I only got to really understand what we were producing at the time. Um, but when I went into trading watches, I got a very good grasp of what brands were doing successfully and unsuccessfully. So I knew what, like what was selling, what wasn't selling, whether it's, whether it's style or whether it's um, sizes of watches or materials that they're using or just marketing um, marketing stuff that they were doing, like what was happening, what wasn't happening. Okay, I think this is important. Another important segue in your in your path, which is to to, re, to reiterate, you started by working for someone else, and you started essentially becoming a retailer, right? You were no, you didn't own your own brand at the time. You were selling other people's brands, and then you created your own brand. So, what what did you what did you see then when you were a retailer? You were selling and trading other people's products, other brands of watches. What did you recognize in a marketplace that said that you know there's room for me to come in and and you know take a piece of the pie. Yeah, so I think the you know I think the big part was really the evolution of I would say social and smartphone. Well, it actually started with you know with obviously with with the internet. So um, you know when when you know Amazon's of the world came along, and I think the consumer became more and more comfortable um, buying stuff online, and then they interestingly enough is you know when when the whole internet um when the whole internet thing came on the scene um a lot of the big brands sort of like shied away from it because they were so set in their in their ways of doing business so you have you know you have your production side you have your distribution side you have your retail like they have all these different channels and all these sort of like layers and then when you know, when the Amazons of the world came along and websites started popping up and selling watches online, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this is really, this is not how we were built to do things. And I think once I saw that the consumer was becoming more and more comfortable with purchasing online, and I realized that probably like in 2008, 2009, I realized that um, these companies are out of touch. Like the brands who I was trading and selling, they're completely out of touch with what's happening on the consumer side. I see. So you're talking about the direct-to-consumer business model where you're selling directly to consumer rather than going through some kind of retailer, physical retailer typically, and having your your, your fans or your customers go through it that way. What challenges did, did you face with that approach? Because it sounds like a new path that you're, you're, you're blazing, a new trail that you're blazing in this industry. No one's really done it yet at the, at the, at the time that you started the, the company. What challenges did you face along the way? So obviously, you know, as, as, as a new watch brand, I think the biggest challenge is how do you find customers and how do you get people to, to, to know that you exist? Um, for us, um, you know, we obviously had to create a product. We had to come up with some kind of idea of, you know, who we are, what our DNA is. Um, we had to do that part, but I think the biggest challenge was, okay, if we get the design right and we get the product right, which I think we could, um, how do we reach, um, people and let them know that we exist without, you know, without blowing tons and tons of money on advertising. So I think that was our biggest, biggest challenge. 
Mm-hmm. Did you have to do any kind of testing during this this phase where you were the marketing issue like you're talking about is obviously very important, but before you even get there, you have to create a product that people want. How did you determine what people wanted in a watch that was different than what they could maybe get out there currently? What I realized was um, there was a segment of the market that the big brands didn't want to touch. And so, well, first of all, I want to go back and say that the structures of the big brands, given the fact that they have all these different layers, their retail prices are completely out of touch with what's going on in reality. Like what I'm saying is, you know, if you, if you go to their, if, if they're built on that layered sort of system. You know, they have to, they have to have enough profit in there to mm-hmm. pay the distributor. They have to have enough profit to move to the retailer and the retail has got to go to the consumer. Their retails are completely out of touch. But besides for that, there was a certain segment of the market, a certain point in the market. Um, I would say for a Swiss watch in the, the four to $500 range, um, where there wasn't a lot of emphasis on quality and unique design. So that was the kind of place where like, oh, you know, if you need, you know, all the big brands had that late, it had that price point. So, I mean, not all the big brands, but a lot of the big brands have those price points, Have the, but that's like their... The, the, the bottom of the barrel. So that's like, you know, okay, so we're going to bring somebody in. He doesn't know much about watches and we're going to charge him $500. And eventually when he has enough money, we'll go ahead and buy our $2,000 watch. So that sort of area, like four to five, $600 range was sort of like neglected. Like mm-hmm. there was nobody really emphasizing saying, okay, you know what? This is our price point. We're not going to $2,000 unless we're producing something that's probably worth $5,000. I see. So for, for the, com- the competitors out there, they had a, a product in that price point, but it was just an introductory product and it wasn't their core focus. You recognize that you could come in and make that price point your, your, your core focus and you're able to do this because, and you're able to compete because you're going direct to consumer. There were no middlemen involved that, that ate away your profits and required you to charge a higher price for a quality or higher quality products. Now you mentioned that the, one of the issues once you create a product like this is to be able to reach them, reach the, the, your target audience. How would you describe your, your, your fans? What are they, what are, what is the ideal, you know, fan like? So the ideal fan, believe it or not, a lot of our fans actually own a lot of high end watches. And I think this is also a little bit of a shift in the consumer mindset. And it's, it's sort of all happening at the same time. So there's a lot of different moving parts that are happening. You have social, you have the web, obviously, you have the mobile phone, and you have this, the consumer, of the, the mindset of the consumer. So I think up until now, the, the mindset of the consumer was, okay, I'm gonna, I see a billboard, and therefore, they tell me I should buy this watch, and I'm going to buy this watch. I see an ad in Wall Street Journal. I see an ad in Business Week or, or any other p- big publication. And okay, so this is what I need to buy because they have some ambassador on there. Some, they paid some George Clooney to wear the watch. I paid a million dollars, and this is what I need to wear. And I think the new consumer has a very, very different approach. They're looking for something a little bit more niche. They're looking for something a little bit different. They're looking for something that not everybody else has. And that's the kind of customer, uh, or I shouldn't say customer, bad word. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the fan we're looking for. We're looking for the fan. By, and by the way, this kind of fan is growing in numbers. Like it, it's not, it's, I wouldn't even consider it a niche anymore. 
Are you seeing this outside of your industry as well? Yeah, I, I see it not just when it comes to watches. I think when it comes to when it comes to um, I mean, I'm into cycling, so I see a lot of a lot of new cycling brands coming online. Um, I see a lot of when it comes to leather goods, men's accessories. Um, I think I think it's across the board. I think it's just especially when it comes to like accessories and stuff like that. I think maybe uh, with phones or other items, maybe not electronics. Um, I think it's a little bit harder. But when it comes to like fashion where someone can create something that's very, very different, um, I think a lot of the new age consumers and some of, some of, the, some of the older consumers um, are looking for something that not everybody else can get. They're looking for something a little bit different. They go on Instagram. They're, 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 they're viewing things. They see people, what people like. Um, they see images. They see videos. And they're, they're less and less driven by the old style of we get a brand ambassador. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is wearing the watch. So therefore, you should wear it. I see. So you're you're saying that the, the, new, the best way to approach this new growing market even outside of the watch industry is to compete by being unique and really avoid trying to become a me too product or a cheaper version of a Rolex or cheaper version of some other high end brand. So, and you're able to emphasize your uniqueness through images and video, which is what you, you said earlier. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, that content creation process? Like how do you guys create, what's the process behind creating new, new image content or new video content for your brand? Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I think that probably consumes 50 or 60% of our time is just focusing on imagery and content. I don't know how to explain a process. I don't know if there's a particular process. I could just tell you that we have a very, very strong emphasis on imagery. I think as a brand that's directed to consumer, we do not have a store. Um, in fact, we're not even interested in stores. We do have stores call us and say, we'd like to carry your products. And we, we're just not interested. We're just, we don't, that's not our business model. So obviously imagery is obviously key. So um, we have, we use, we have people outside the company that do a lot of imagery. We have in-house now that do a lot of imagery and video. Yeah, so say, but let's start with the the website then. When it comes to, when someone comes to the website, I recommend anyone first check out the website because it's, it looks like very high-end website when I, when I take a look at it. When someone comes to the website, they look at your product images, what, and you guys sit down and think, okay, let's, like, we're releasing a new a new watch, let's get the, the images, the product images for it. What are, what are the key qualities of a, a great product image, in your opinion? So, one thing that we've done recently, um, and we haven't rolled it out to all the products, but we are doing now video. So we are actually doing 360 videos and where the, pro the product is in real life, not like a 360. Um, years ago, there was these 360 videos where basically like it was like 40 images and you could just mm -hmm. kind of like scroll it back and forth. Um, now what we're doing is like real life um, videos. And we upload them on YouTube and then we embed them on our, on our item pages so people can actually play in real life the product turning in 360 as well as, you know, you can see the movement working, you can see the hands moving. So it, it's like a real life experience. And, and do you have like um, a service that you, or an application? Or like how do you guys get this made for anyone else out there that wants to take the same approach? 
the 360 video is a very, very difficult, with, especially when it comes to watches. Watches has its own very unique uh, challenges, um, especially when you're taking pictures or doing 360s of any item that has a glass or a glare or it's high gloss. Um, you end up with a lot of reflections. Um, the 360 videos where we use, I use a particular person that actually, that's what he does. That's all he does. Yeah, what do you look for? If someone out there wants to find some specialist, it's like, what's the name of the role, I guess, that they will, they will look for? You know, it's one of those things that it was, it's been very, very difficult for us to find. So we tried to do it in-house. Um, there are a lot of tools out there that you could buy. Um, like boxes that allow you to do these 360 videos in-house. Um, but for us, um, we, weren't ever, we weren't able to replicate the quality of what we're getting right now from using an out, an out, outsourcing it right now. Got it. Yeah, it sounds like your case is very specialized, like you're saying, yeah. because there's a glass, there's a reflection. There needs to be someone that has a little bit more expertise for a product that maybe doesn't have that kind of reflection. You might be able to get get away with something that's more, you know, you buy you buy a product online instead of finding an expert. So one of the, one of the other keys to 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 ensuring that customers are getting what they want, you mentioned this earlier, was the ninety day no question asked return policy. So not only are they getting to see the product in three sixty to get a real sense of what it's like if they were to have one, they can actually buy one. And, and try it out themselves. So this is an, an approach I think um, it's it's obviously used by a lot of big retailers, Amazon, Zappos. They all have this key emphasis on no questions asked, buy it, try it. If you don't like it, return it. How do you how do you manage all this? How do you make sure that that a you're not going to be uh, to lose profit over this approach? Well, we'll start there. How do you make sure that 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 that, that doesn't happen? So we used to have a 30 day return policy. And what we realized was that it puts a lot of pressure on the customer, or I should say the fan should not be using that word. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on, on a fan, you know, when they get the product, they see it. Sometimes they're like, wow, I love it. But then you have the people that are like, oh, I'm not hundred percent sure. Let me, let me look at it. Um, and you know, the 30 days, sort of has like that back of the mind, like ticking, like there's like, there's like a clock that's going off 90 days kind of takes that out of the equation. And it sort of gives them a real chance just like without pressure saying, do I like it or I do, or I don't like it. You know, in our case, I'm proud to say that <laughs> we have very, very few returns. Um, and, and one thing I will emphasize is the return process has got to be as easy and as seamless as possible. So, you know, you want, if someone buys a watch and they're disappointed, we found that a lot of people will actually say, oh, you know what, let me try something else. And they'll, they'll actually keep the second product. Like they'll call, you know, we'll give them a recommendation. We're like, oh, what didn't you like about this watch? And they'll be like, oh, I, you know, the size, I thought it was, you know, a little too small, maybe anything a little bigger. I didn't like the strap. And then we'll sort of like guide them. But, you know, in order to get to that conversation, you have to, Give them the feeling that at any moment, if they decide they just want to return it and they don't like it, um, no problem. Easy. We're, we do it with a smile. Yeah, I've heard this uh, this study that actually shows that the longer the return policy, the less likely the customer is to return it because they, like you're saying, have more of a chance to don't have they don't feel rushed, so they have more of a chance to get to 
get the value out of the product to embed it into their their life their lifestyle and they're further away from the pain essentially of paying for the product so it doesn't seem as 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 uh, as a much of a, a uh, urgency to get their money back essentially so i think that you're certainly on to something and i've certainly heard other studies that show the same thing to extend your return policy for, for that purpose get the customer especially if it's a product like a watch where it's not going to fall apart anyway like you have the time for it to be it's going to be a durable product um, so you mentioned that it needs to be as painless as possible for for the return process like what are some things that you guys actively try to to improve in that arena to make sure that the customer is you know is absolutely happy with the with the return policy or the return process if they were to to begin one yeah so i think the the most important thing would be obviously communication um, from a systems perspective um, we use shipstation um, shipstation does have a built-in return um portal um uh, we, you, we also, I believe, I'm not sure if we have it in Shopify, but I definitely know that, you know, when someone contacts us and says they have an interest in returning the product, we immediately, you know, we, we put a representative in charge of it. Um, and that person is sort of like the concierge of the return. So make your process, make your return process like a concierge service. So all languages, any language that you're using, you know, whether email um, it should be very, very um, like, you know, we, we just want you to be happy style. I see. So you, you, you dedicate one customer service representative for the entire process rather than just having, you know, a team and whoever gets to them, gets to them and they kind of bounce around. Like that's what you want to avoid. Yeah. You want to make sure that it's hassle free. Cause I, I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of the consumers, um, you know, with you know, part of the return policy, they're they're already on edge. If they want to return a product, or they're they're thinking about returning a product, they're already on edge. And by by having the proper communication and giving them the ease of mind, you'll you might also find sometimes where people will just like you know what, forget, it, I'll just keep it. Mm. Or you know, listen, if they're not happy with the product and they absolutely want to return it, um, you're going to get returns. There's no question, but you'll find a percentage of customers, man, I can't believe I just said that again. Uh, percentage <laughs> of fans um, will um, keep the product just because they're sort of, they're, not only do they have the 90 day, but they just feel very relaxed in the communication. Like there's someone that's on top of it, someone that's making sure whether it's a return label um, or, or just sort of giving them all the information that they need to make the return as painless as possible. Got it. So once you do get the return back from the customer, like what process goes on there to make to make sure the product is ready to to go back out for sale? So I mean, our return policy is if it's not worn, so they can't wear it for ninety days. Uh, which I mean, listen, if someone puts it on and wears it for a couple of days, it's okay. But I can't, you know, we you know, we we don't have a return policy where someone could buy the watch, wear it for ninety days. Um, go go to the Sahara Desert with it and then decide to return it. Um, that we don't have. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of lenient when it, we're very lenient when it comes to getting back watches, whether it's, you know, it's a little bit, it's got a little bit scuffs or it's got something on it. I mean, the process of, of actually getting it back, um, when the product comes back, obviously we inspect it. Um, if there's an exchange, like they want another product, um, most of the times what we'll do is we'll actually ship out the exchange before we get back the watch 
because we sort of want to close the sale as fast as possible. We don't want there to be like a huge amount of time between when they return to when they get they get the product they want if it's an exchange. So as soon as we see that the tracking is already moving back to us, like the the, the return tracking is coming back, uh, we'll immediately process the new watch and send it right out to them. Mm-hmm. So I would say a quick step back and, and talk about your, your manufacturing uh, process uh, because again, you have lots of years of expertise. I think this is going to be valuable for anyone out there that doesn't have years of expertise and you're creating a product that's not easy to create, right? You're creating a product that, that has lots of moving pieces, you know, no pun intended, and it has to be high quality. So what, what, is, your, what is your manufacturing process like and how do you ensure this level of quality? A lot of sampling. <laughs> I'll tell you that. So um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but our first watch was launched on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And that watch, our first watch, it took, I think, five five sets of samples until we got everything right. Yeah, what's coming What's coming in a sample? Is it just like one watch? Or like what's the, what's the, how does a sample work in, in your okay. industry? Yeah, sure. So the first sample that we get would be component samples. So it would be like, okay, so we need this and this and this and this apart. Um, and then we would assemble it here um, in Miami um, just to understand all the different parts. Okay. Once we get, once we've, once we're happy with all the different pieces of the components, and at that point, we can already let the assembler to do the assemble sampling. Um, and in that case, I mean, after we get our initial, our initial samples, which is not very color variant, like we'll choose one color and we'll say, okay, we just want to make sure we get the components correct and they all fit together perfectly. Once we get that done, then we'll say, okay, now we need samples of colors. So let's go with an orange, a blue, a black, and let's get all those samples, make sure all the coloring is correct. And then if the coloring is correct, um, hopefully, I mean, happens within within the first shot. Uh, that could be, I mean, that in the past that's happened, that's taken you know three or four different reiterations of those samples until we get the coloring correct. And sometimes as well as the components as well. So each one of those steps could be a couple of different sessions until we actually get them correct. Um, and then there's the pairing up with the straps or bracelets. That's a whole nother set of samples that we get in from sat from strap samples, um, bracelet samples, clasp samples, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they they get a you're creating this high quality product. The customer is now interested in, in purchasing it. And one thing that was mentioned in the pre interview uh, questionnaire was that you guys have a lot of experience optimizing the full customer journey, minimizing any pain points and purchasing barriers. So we touched on a couple of things already. One is to have these high quality images and these three sixty videos. The, the second thing is to have a, a great return policy. So what, what about the middle? Like, What's the middle phase? When someone lands on the site for the first time, what are some things that you guys try to actively, actively do to minimize or to reduce any purchase barriers? Obviously, you need to have the least amount of friction as possible. So most of the, most of the traffic that we get is sort of like direct traffic to the product pages. I think that's that's key. I think that thinking that a consumer is going to land on your homepage and then somehow find, you know, depending on how many products you have, obviously, um, to be able to find the product that they're looking for, it's hard. Now, if they, you know, we run a lot of Facebook ads, um, we do a lot of direct linking to the product itself. And so when they land, they land on, you know, something that caught their eye and then they land directly on the page. And then from there, 
um, we just want them to check out. So get them all the information that they need on the product page, as, as much information as you can. So whether it's specifications, extra pictures, different angles, 360 videos, whatever it is to make them feel as comfortable as possible with what they're buying. Um, and then send them directly to the checkout. And on the checkout, um, I, I'm a big proponent of no upsells until you get a sale. Mm. So what, what about your brand, your product, it, it requires you or or encourages you to to remove any upselling because like you're, you're, you're I think you're hinting at is that there are a lot of websites a lot of e-commerce websites out there that try to maximize that average order value by pushing upsells particularly before uh, the initial purchase what what makes you decide to remove that from your your process for us obviously every single category is different but for us I think um, the purchase of a watch, um, is not, is, I wouldn't consider it like an essential item. So in other words, if I'm looking for, uh, let's say protein powder. Okay. So obviously I work out. So if, if I, if I'm looking for protein powder, so then maybe I need some other supplement or, you know, so then that's, it's okay. Like someone says, you know, I see that you like the, um, the, the, the 16, whatever, 16 gram protein, whatever. And, you know, maybe you'd like to get some amino acids together with that because, you know, so it's sort of, it's sort of in line with it. You know, it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy this and this, cause I sort of need them together. Um, I don't want to say that upsells cheapens our product, but what I do think that it does is that it's, it sort of sets in a little bit confusion it sends a, there's a little bit set there's a little bit of a like oh i have to make a choice now and so i feel like you know if somebody needs a particular product okay um like they need something like protein powder or they need some other supplement or anything that they absolutely need like they ran out of it and they need it um then i think upsells make sense but someone when someone said, you know, nobody needs a watch. Well, a lot of our, a lot of our, a lot of our fans need watches today, but for the most part, you know, you don't need the watch to survive. Um, so I think upsells in our category, at least upsells sort of creates this distraction and it's like, Oh, I'm not sure if I need that upsell. You know what? Let me save this page and I'll come back. You know, let me, do I really need this upsell? I don't want that to be the barrier. I don't want, I want to keep it as simple, as clean as possible. We sell a watch and it comes, we get, we offer different straps and after you buy, we'll do the upsells. But right now, check out, buy the watch. Mm. And so when do the upsells happen? Like how do they happen? Is it through email marketing afterwards? How do you? Yeah. So it's all done through, through our email marketing system. I see. What's usually the upsell? Is it like a strap or like, how do you upsell them? Yep. So it's usually like a strap. So what we do is, you know, post-purchase, we have different flows that go out um, through the email platform. And a part of that, part of that flow would be, um, be like, Hey, you know, I see that you bought this watch. Um, you know, here's another strap and um, get them a discount on the strap. Mm -hmm. What, what email platform do you use to manage all of this? Clavio. Got it. Now, how soon after they make this purchase, the initial purchase, do you try to do the upsell? We usually try to do this upsell. I believe it's set to after delivery. I believe it's like one week after delivery. 
Got and you have you played around with this number as well? Yeah, so we've we've played around with it. We've we've also tested um, a, an immediate upsell post purchase. Um, it did work. I liked it. Um, the problem with it was that it wasn't a Shopify checkout, and it created some challenges, like with tracking and canceling and. There's, there's, there's some limitations on discounts and coupons, how they're applied, et cetera. So um, right now we're just doing the email. Mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned this earlier about how you have Facebook ads that drive traffic directly to the product page. And also during our pre-interview, there's a mention that you guys nurture your leads through sequencing Facebook ads. What does it mean to, to nurture leads? So the what we're finding is that it takes sometimes six months to um, to actually close a customer. So you know, people see an ad. You know, we, we sell we sell an expensive product. You know, we're not selling you know a fifty dollar item. Our 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 entry level watch right now is at around three hundred fifty dollars. Um, that's a significant amount of money. So a lot of times, what we find is it could take four to five, even six months for someone to actually come back and close a sale. So for us, nurturing would be um, a sequence of ads. So if someone comes in with an ad, you have your, your top funnel of ads that are usually just a single image. Um, they come, they land on the page, and then we would, you know, if they don't buy, then we would give them more information. So people want people want to be fed information. So like, for example, our, we, get, we, send, we, we have content that... Um, and it explains a little bit more about the product, about the processes, of what it takes to make one of our watches. Um, we have those kinds of ads going. Obviously, there's an email sequence that they have. They get um, if they sign up to our one of our pop-ups. Um, I believe it's a it's a four or five part series um, for the for like a welcome series. Um, so they're getting that. Um, we're obviously retargeting them um, through through the chat, through the network, through the, uh, through Critio is the one I think we use Critio. And we obviously, um, we obviously can't, we obviously hit them up again on uh, Facebook as well with videos and carousels, etc. Got it. So the first interaction usually with the product is an image of the product. And if the Facebook user clicks on the, the image, they land on your product page, they don't make a purchase right away, you'd immediately start hitting them with content about uh, the, the manufacturing process, like how the product is made, like why it's high quality, why it's worth the price it is. Mm-hmm. As well as a lot of social proof. So places that we've been written up, we've been written up at Inc. Magazine, Forbes did an article on us, Business Insider did a huge article on us. Uh, we've had a lot, a lot of great press. Um, and so you can use that in your sequence as well to show people like, you know, we're not just, you're not, you're not, you're not just another, we're not just another website that you clicked on, but, you know, we have, a, we're, we're making significant headway within the marketplace. Yeah, even if you don't have those write-ups, even reviews, I think are great. If you have customer yep. testimonials, reviews, certainly put those up. They are typically, you know, unbiased uh, social proof, that, like you're, you're mentioning. So I want to talk a little about the, the website. I mentioned earlier that it's a great design website. Highly recommend anyone check it out. L i v w a t c h e s dot com. Live watches. Uh, so when someone, uh, when you, when you guys sat down to create this this uh, website, was it all done in house? Was it uh, outsourced? Like how how was it made? 
Um, we outsourced everything. Got it. What was the, did you have any, I guess, what was your directive? Like how, how did you want the, what was your, uh, I guess, description of how you wanted the website to look? Number one, it's got to be simple and it's got to be easy and it's got to be all image driven. So a lot, a lot of imagery. We used Upwork. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we actually went with Shopify is the huge, the huge community that Shopify has um, to get talent to help you, whether it's designing it. Um, uh, I will tell you that the first thing we actually did before we actually built the website was actually build a brand book. What's, what's that? So sort of, uh, like, sort of like a brand guideline book to understanding like our logo, the fonts that we use, et cetera, et cetera, for consistency. Got it. So when you build this, this is all done in house. Like, is there like a, like a formula to follow to create a brand book to, to help align all of your online properties? Uh, we actually outsource that. And they can get that through like Upwork as well. How did you find? So we just went into Upwork and there's plenty of people on there that'll build you a brand book. You sort of like explain to them, the, you know, the concept of the brand, you know, what you're going for, what the DNA is, um, what the look and feel is. Um, and then, that, that process actually took three months till we actually got that done. But once you have that, then that's your guide. And then when you have your guide, then you can go on to Upwork again and then say, I'm looking for a designer. And the designer's like, okay, what do you want? And you're like, here's my brand book. This is what I want. This is the kind of style that I like. This is the concept. This is the imagery. This is the kind of person I'm going after. Um, these are the fonts to be used. These are the colors to be used. These are the guides, like how close you could put font next to a, next to our logo, um, how our logo should be, should be presented on the page. And that really helps designer have a better idea of, of, you know, where you're going with this thing. Mm. So when I landed on the the website, there was a pop-up message for, for, um, for, for, an, for an email collection that I'm assuming that goes through uh, uh, Clavio. So when you when someone does land on your website, I think it was mentioned that there's a Taylor pop-up message conditionally based on the referral source. So wherever the person came from, and they land on the on the on the website, the pop-up messaging might be different. Talk to us about this. Like how how is that how's that done? Yeah, so I think the pop-ups in general, I think you have to be really smart in how you use them. Um, a lot of people get annoyed by them, especially when they come back to the website and they see the same pop-up over and over and over again. So I think you need to tailor your offers. So for example, if someone comes to the website, they've never been on the website before, they get, a, they get an offer for a 10% off their first purchase only. Um, if they come back to the website, they shouldn't get that same message. So they'll get a different kind of offer. Like, do you, would, would you like to be part of our limited edition? You know, we have, a, we have limited editions. Would you like to be notified when our limited editions get released? Um, that kind of offer. Um, if they, for example, if we're running a coupon um, on a Facebook ad, then the pop would be directly related to the coupon. It'd be like, hey, you know, here's your coupon. Copy it. You can copy it straight out of the pop-up. Um, or give us your email to copy the um, to copy the coupon, something like that. And what what, uh, what application do you use for that? Just Uno. Got it. So just you mentioned Just Uno, ShipStation, Clavio, and Critio for your retargeting. What yep. other apps or services do you rely on to help run the business? For our inventory, we're using BrightPro. It connects directly to 
connects directly to, Sh to uh, Shopify. Uh, brings in all the orders. It's a great way for us to fulfill orders, especially we have a lot of different um, parts um, when it comes to watches. So essentially, every single watch that we ship um, is sort of custom made because you know we have different strap options. So everyone needs to be built sort of like custom order. And what Bright Pearl has, which is really unique, um, is sort of like a product builder. So in other words, when a, when a watch is sold on the website, the order comes in, it sort of like compiles all the different parts that are needed to make that particular order whole. And it sort of puts it into the order. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Yeah. And the other thing that we um, just started using, which is phenomenal, is Front App. I don't know if you ever heard That's of it. for customer service? Yep, it's for customer service and that directly connects to Shopify. So for example, if someone sends us an email, um, we immediately see all their transactions on the side panel and we can, it just makes the communication a lot easier. No one has to look up any orders. It's all, it's all right there. Um, it also, all the conversations that are happening, whether it's through email, Facebook, Twitter, um, live chat, all that comes into this one platform. And what's great about that is that, you know, if someone hits you up on live chat or sent you an email, you can see all the different communication that has happened with that particular fan. Got it. So, you know, thank you so much for your time, Chaz. So live watches, L-I-V-W-A-T-C-H-E-S.com is a website. Again, highly recommend folks check it out. Great design yep. website. What's next for the, for the brand? Yep. So we're launching our new Kickstarter campaign. Um, can't give up the date yet. But we will be launching sometime within the next three weeks. And we think it's going to be phenomenal. It's, uh, we have four new styles that are coming out. Um, our last Kickstarter campaign was amazing. We, um, we raised uh, $1.7 million on our last Kickstarter campaign. Um, we got um, 3,000 new people to wear our watches. <laughs> Amazing. And yeah, happy, happy, happy customers. And so far we've given our fans a sneak peek of what's coming up and they're extremely happy. So we're excited about that. You know, we've taken that and that's, what's great about the direct to consumer, you know, part is that, you know, we have that direct connection. So we're getting a lot of feedback. So a lot of what went into these four new models is feedback that we've gotten from our fans. Awesome. So for anyone that wants to check it out or stay tuned to it, again, Live Watches, L-I-V-W-A-T-C-H-E-S.com. Again, thank you so much for your time, Chaz. Thank you. Appreciate it. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. You enter your email to see your results and it takes you to a landing page with your results. And then we also have an email sequence set up for each one. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.